This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. The following was recorded at RAND's Politics Aside 2016 in November. Here's moderator Malcolm Gladwell introducing the panel on autonomous vehicles. We're going to move now uh, to a conversation with um, two very, very smart people, Nidhikara and uh, Tim Bonds, are going to come up and talk about um, autonomous vehicles. Um, thank you all uh, for coming to Politics Aside. Yeah. It's really an honor uh, to speak in front of this group of august people. Out of enthusiasm, can I ask the first question? Sure, go, go, go. Okay, so I'm a recovering engineer in a, in a it's enduring okay. knee. There's programs well, for let that. Me, let me tell you what I mean by a recovering engineer. I've spent a lifetime thinking about how do we do something? How do we build something? I'm only now, since I've been at RAND, thanks to, to Michael Rich and our other colleagues, really worried about what should we be doing and why should anybody think this is an important thing to do, yeah. especially as we have a, a change in administration? So let me ask you this. I love autonomous systems for their own sake, um, but why should I love autonomous vehicles, and particularly, why should I love autonomous cars? You know, Tim, there's, you should love them and maybe also hate them. And let me ask, let me start with the love, which is this. You know, we've, we've come off an election and we're thinking about the, really the nature of our democracy and what is that about. And one of the things I think everyone can agree on is that the foundation of democracy includes choice. And I think what the reason we should love autonomous vehicles is because they will democratize transportation. And actually, let me explain what I mean by asking you a couple questions. So, so Tim, do you have a car? Absolutely. Um, tell me about it. What uh, kind of is it? It's a Chevy, uh, holds four people and a dog, bike on the back. Okay. And we, is it... Uh, Hybrid, what's, what's it run on? Oh, no, it runs on smelly yeah. gas. <laughs> unleaded. I get the Vaughn's 20 cents per gallon discount. And when was the last time you rode it, and where is it now? Funny you should ask me that. I almost never get the keys of the car anymore, okay? Um, one of the very rare times I've actually driven the car here is today to talk to you about autonomous vehicles. Uh, so it's here in the basement, um, okay. and I left the dog at home. Okay, and where does it usually live? Uh, usually it lives somewhere on the road in Ventura County. Uh, okay. One of my family members driving, or it's in our driveway. Okay. And could you get along without it? No. Uh, first of all, the dog doesn't ride a bike. Um, <laughs> but also, I mean, just, just really for our, our community, um, I would love to walk to work. Um, I would love to walk or bike to the grocery store. Our community really isn't set up that way okay. conveniently. So practically speaking, I, I, I probably really do need the car, so, though, I, though I never get to drive it. Yeah, Someone I, else I hear that. So, so my answers would be very similar. I live in San Francisco. I have a car. It sits parked. It seats four people. And what I'm trying to draw your attention to is the fact that this is a necessary asset that is enormously inefficient because you've got room for four people. But most of the time, I'm going to guess one person's in it. And it sits in your driveway or parked somewhere. Mine does. Most of the time, taking up precious land. And I think autonomous vehicles can change this. And here's the thing. It's not only – and it's expensive, I'm going to guess, right? Absolutely. So it's expensive. It's inefficient. It takes up other resources. And you can't get along without it. And for people who are – who can't afford a car, can't drive one because of age or disability, that's even off the table, right? So let's let's turn this around. You, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer these same questions. You asked me what I just asked you, but let's pretend it's whatever, 10 years, 15 years from now, and I'm going to answer as me in the future. Okay, so future nitty. Right here, yeah. Do you own a car? I don't. 
Um, I gave mine up about five, six years ago. Okay, so when you need a car, when you need access to that, if you do uh, in the future, yeah. um, how do you do that? Well, I just, I just I have an app for that. Um, so it depends on what I'm doing. So let's say I want to go get my haircut, right, a couple of miles away to my salon or whatever. I call it this, like, one-person pod comes, and, it, like, I get in it, and I just go where I need to go. Or if I need to go downtown, um, there's this sort of, like, funny caterpillar, like, shuttle bus that comes. So I say, here's where I want to go. Here's how I'm getting there. I get on with other commuters. There's coffee on board, Wi-Fi. It's great. Um, if I need groceries, it's not even a car. It's like this little pod thing that I just that I just say, go go pick up my groceries. Um, and my kids play soccer. Uh, so, you know, they I, when I need them picked up, I just tell the, call a really spe specific vehicle that I can watch them in the car. It goes and picks them up from soccer so that I can do the things I, other things I need to do. I'm not stuck behind the vehicle. So it's great. I don't know what's coming. It's just exactly what I need at the moment that I need it. So I don't have a car. Okay, so i got to ask you this. So when I get in my car, usually it's dirty because we're trying to conserve water and, you know, don't always, don't always get to the car wash. Um, it's uh, usually something's broken on it, uh, and it's almost always out of gas. Yeah. So when your robo-ride shows up, is it dirty, broken, and running on empty? No, it's 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 always the newest model because the thing is, this car gets used so much, unlike my old car which sat in my driveway, that the turnover is high. It's always the latest technology. The service that I use keeps it clean. You know, my old car had Cheerios all over the floor. Not so, right? So it's it's really convenient. It's clean. It's cost it's, it's cost effective too. I used to have to pay an arm and a leg to have my car sitting in my garage. Now I pay per trip. It's cheaper than transit used to be. It's the opportunity cost too, right? I mean, yeah. one of the things about my car is spend a lot of money up front. You know, and I know you know I get fifty five cents a mile by I think GSA to for for work trip. So over the life of car, for the last hundred thousand miles, it's fifty five thousand dollars. But big opportunity cost of yeah. the money that I paid for it. That's exactly right. And you know, let me and and let's talk about the cost of gas, right? So my car used to run on gas, and now it runs when I call it. They're usually hydrogen, actually, which is really cool because there's no tailpipe emissions. Um, and the reason that we couldn't have hydrogen in the past is because you needed you needed infrastructure. You know, it, we used to have 13,000 gas stations in the state of California, and we used to have 20 or so hydrogen stations. Who's going to buy a hydrogen car if you can't ga fuel it up anywhere? But with these autonomous fleets, I think they, like, go to Burbank and fill I don't even know, right? And they get their hydrogen. There's only, like, you know, 50 hydrogen stations. That's not a problem anymore. Okay, so I'm a fan, okay, but I've got two problems with it. Let me mention one now and then one at the sure. end. Sure. The, the, the question I have now, and this is mainly a, an argument I've heard against autonomous vehicles, you know, in the, in the press, other, other conversations. One is that somewhere along the line, that autonomous vehicle is going to have to make a choice, you know, between harms among people. Someone's going to bolt in front of it, you know, yeah. whether that be, you know, going in, uh, down the road in your subdivision or, or maybe on a major highway. The autonomous vehicle is going to have to choose between, you know, the danger of striking this person or maybe veering off the road and hitting a tree and maybe harming your passenger or someone on the mm -hmm. road. So my question for you is twofold on this. One, how is that vehicle going to make those kinds of choices in real time? Yeah. Secondly, should I be the pedestrian, <laughs> your passenger, or the tree? Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a really good question. You know, the ethics of autonomous vehicles are really, really interesting. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest that the, the real ethical questions are not where that lies, right? Because the cases in – so what do people do? If you're going to hit a pedestrian, you slam on the brakes. An autonomous vehicle is going to do the same thing, and the reason is that it is such a un, an unpredictable situation. If it veers off, 
Is it going to cause a crash behind it? Is it going to, you know, is, it's such a complex environment that it's going to do, in my opinion, the predictable thing. And I think some of these questions about ethics, they're really fun and interesting to talk about. They're great over a martini. But I actually want to draw attention to the, what I see as the real ethical questions around autonomous vehicles. And I actually see uh, what one really important one, which is about how we distribute risk. So let me ask you a question. When, imagine you're driving down the road and there's a cyclist to your right, right? How do you, what do you do to get around the cyclist? Okay, so that actually just happened this morning. I came down the PCH and there were actually hundreds of cyclists on my right. Uh, and <laughs> it, it's, it's out of, I mean, literally it's out of some concern of my own, you know, attentiveness driving and out of some concern, I mean, look, the, the ones that are sleek and the spiffy outfits, they're, they're going in a single direction, they're, they're competent bicyclists. If it was me though, I'm kind of like weaving all over the place, uh, no one should trust me on a bike. So um, the, what I typically do when I see them is the same thing I do in my subdivision. I, I crowd the center line. When I'm in my subdivision, for instance, look, I go slow. Um, I've had kids in that subdivision. There's cars parked on both sides. Kids, pets, sometimes you know, adults on their cell phone, you know, they'll walk out in the middle of the road. So I know I gotta drive slow and drive in the middle. But it, it's it's I'm making that same risk choice too. Some might be backing out of a driveway, some might come up a right. hill a little too fast. And so I am splitting those risks. So and that's an ethical choice. You are making an ethical decision about how risk should be distributed on the road. And autonomous vehicles, the programmers of autonomous vehicles are gonna have to make those same choices. So this this question of, you know, do you hit the pedestrian or sacrifice the passenger? That's rarely, if ever, going to happen. But this idea of how do you distribute risk on the road is going to happen every single day, every moment that that vehicle is operating. Does the vehicle follow the speed limit or not? Does it give wider berth to pedestrians? Does it crowd into the center of the lane, putting the other oncoming vehicles at risk? Those are the questions that don't get talked about, but actually will have enormous, enormous consequences. But Tim, let me let me ask that question of you. You know, you work on military autonomous systems, and I actually can't I can't think about this topic without wondering what are the ethics around military systems and the use of you know autom automated uh, you know autonomous weapons and that sort of thing. So this is a huge topic. There's lots of different parts about this, but let me let me just put this in context. I think it matters a lot whether you're talking about a defensive system tied to a, a sensor network that you're using as one of a necessary means to defend yourself against a rapidly emerging threat, and I, I can list some of those, or if you're talking about an offensive system. So let's start, start with the defensive. All right, so um, there's, there's a, one really good example of this um, right now today, and you can, you can see this in the press. Imagine that you're either living in um, South Korea or Japan. Either way, you're living within range of an often violent North Korea. So if you're in Japan, there mm -hmm. are dozens of missiles that can reach you uh, in matters of minutes. Uh, if you're in South Korea, um, there, there are thousands of missiles that can reach Seoul or other cities in South Korea in single-digit minutes. And so if, if, um, if they launch a missile, very often these could have chemical warheads. In the not-too-distant future, um, it's, uh, it's conceivable, if not likely, uh, that they'll, they'll manage to meet one of these missiles with one of the nuclear warheads that they're developing. Um, I'll leave it to Dr. Brown if, if um, my timeline is correct, but uh, with the uranium-based system that mm -hmm. uh, Sig Hecker and others believe they have, it may be easier for them to be able to build the kind of uh, weaponizable you know, system mm -hmm. that we've worried about. So at any rate, without getting too involved in that, you're going to have a matter of minutes uh, from the time that that system comes out of a bunker or a cave or something, mm -hmm. you know, in mountainous terrain, launches, 
you, you detect it, you identify it, you track it, and you intercept it before it hits your city. Okay. Very hard to do that with, with human loop systems. So very likely that this is one of the first times you're going to want an automated sensor system and you're going to want um, some form of autonomous uh, intercept system. Now, systems like the U.S. Patriot, like, like the Iron Dome that's being used in Israel, they have a fully autonomous mode. I think that's, this is part of the reason, one of the applications. And for those applications, I think the ethics are strong. Okay. And you'd ha also, if you're a leader of one of those countries, you'd have to ask, what are the ethics of not using this kind of a system, especially if it has a weapons of mass destruction on it? There, there's, a, there's a more, that's one of the, the more interesting applications. So there's, there's one that's you know, maybe less interesting, except for, <laughs> except for us recovering engineers. And that is very little what the, what the, in the case of the Army, it does actually the sort of combat operations that in my generation we would have seen in the movie Patton. In, mm -hmm. in you know, later generations, you might have seen the movie Fury. That's 10% you know, or less of what the Army does. Most of it are things like logistics convoys, large mm -hmm. movements of things places. Um, uh, think about Katrina. Uh, think about all the, you know, the trucks and the you know, other equipment that was moved down there, right. the bulldozers in order to be able to recover. That's about 90% of what the Army does. And so I think that the, there's great applications uh, for autonomous systems uh, in those kinds of logistics convoys. And by the way, um, if, um, if you look at where the casualties were inflicted on U.S. forces and actually on Iraqi and Afghan civilians mm -hmm. um, in the most recent wars, most of those were inflicted on them as they were driving around logistics convoys. So you'd be able to avoid a lot of uh, potential harms, um, you know, just uh, maintaining food and fuel and those kinds of things. Huh. That's but, but let me ask you a question. Um, so uh, when, we, when we talk about threats, um, uh, some of us, uh, you and, and, and others, uh, uh, Isaac Porsche, we've looked at hacking yeah. cars. Um, today's car can be hacked. I mean, I, that's been demonstrated. It was demonstrated actually in 2009 with older model cars. That's right. More famously recently in 2013 with the Jeep. Yeah. Um, so the question I've got, we know that our cars can be hacked. Typically, I have really old cars, so I'm maybe a little less vulnerable. But, um, but uh, if they can be hacked, I'm presuming that the fully autonomous cars might be more vulnerable. Are they? They are. And, and there's two reasons for that, right? When we think about cybersecurity, there's really at least two big considerations. And the first one is, how can a hacker get in? And, you know, your, so your old car, at one point maybe it just had a radio. That's really not a way to get into a, a car. Eight-track tape. There you, you go. Know, I, there I, you go. I, right, right. So someone's I, <laughs> in there with I a grew, screwdriver. I grew up in the disco era. I don't admit to that. Can we take that off the film? <laughs> right. So it used to be you want to hack into a car, you got to cut the brakes. Like you really have to physically mess with the system. And then today's cars, they're connected through Wi-Fi or the 3G. You know, there's a Bluetooth. There are remote ways to get in. So there's, if you think of it as a house, this is now a house that it used to have no doors and no windows. It used to be like a prison. Now we've got doors and windows because we want to be able to get in and out of it. And with autonomous vehicles, if you want to be able to do all the great stuff, whether it's shopping or watching movies or whatever you're going to do in this car of the future, you're going to want all kinds of connectivity, connectivity we probably can't even imagine right now. And each of those points of connection is another door, another window, to the point where it might almost seem like our car is a glass house, right? There's so many ways to get in. So that's one, is there's just so many, there will be so many more ways to get into an autonomous vehicle than the vehicles we know today. And the second part is what are you going to do? What can a hacker do when they get in? And it used to be, you know, the way vehicles were designed, you can, you know, they're all electronically controlled. The idea that you're working the, the steering wheel, that's an illusion. It's, st it's still electronically controlled. <laughs> and so you can hack in and send signals to the steering wheel that has rights to do something different. And that's, that's bad. That, you can do that today. 
But with an autonomous vehicle, you're going to have sensors gathering data, algorithms processing that data, deciding what to do, executing complex maneuvers. There are so many more ways of spoofing the data, spoofing the command signals, changing and overwriting algorithms. So not only is our glass, we now live in a glass house, but we've got really precious things in there. We've got real goodies in there. So this is absolutely a concern. And if anyone expects that autonomous vehicles will never get hacked, they're in for a rude awakening. And that, I'm not trying to spell doom and gloom here, but what that means is we have to bake in cybersecurity into autonomous vehicles. They have to be part of the fabric of the vehicle design. You can't ice it on top. You can't bandage over saran wrap your autonomous vehicle. And so that really needs to be part of the ground floor design of every single system that goes in. And that's hard because our vehicles are made by components developed in thousands of different companies that all come together, that all have to work together. Now they have to be cyber secure together. So let me not minimize the challenge, but there are best standards in cybersecurity that we can look to, but we just have to make sure that they're implemented. But again, I got to ask, but what about the cybersecurity of the vehicles that you're talking about? So you know? th th this is a big deal because um, uh, without getting details here and now, um, we, we look at the cyber vulnerabilities um, of our systems, of our operations in the military. And by the way, we look at the cyber vulnerabilities of the other guys too. Yeah. Uh, and so um, we really need to safeguard these. If it's a critical military system, you need to make sure you've got a human close at hand so they can take control if they need to. Um, but if I'm, if I'm really looking for masked effects, I'm probably less worried about the hacking into the, the actual shooting systems than I'm either hacking into um, the sensing systems. Because mm -hmm. if you spoof a sensor, now you've got a real problem. Uh, some may recall 1983, um, there was a, um, a malfunction of a Soviet sensor system that looked for ICBM launches in the United States. It thought it saw one. Then it, it, it's another system thought it saw it as well. Um, they, uh, there's a lieutenant colonel of the Air Defense Force that looked at this and said, yeah, I think something's wrong with the system. Good thing he didn't call up his boss because there was a period of heightened tensions. Who knows what might have happened? So hacking at those kinds of systems and just regular old malfunctions, um, that's something that we've got to be worried about. But if I'm looking for effects in the conventional sense, I'm going to be more worried about um, you know, the, the accumulation of little things that, that sort of mismanage logistics infrastructure mm. to support military operations. So we did some work uh, 25 years ago. It was actually before I came to RAND. Uh, um, it was freight over roads, waters, uh, and rails for the Dutch, or forward, cute title. Um, <laughs> But what they found out is they looked at different ways to, to, to increase the amount of freight um, over existing infrastructure, decrease the costs of, the, uh, of improving the infrastructure, and decreasing the uh, environmental effects. Mm -hmm. Very long story short, what it came down to was that there was a couple big things they looked at, but it was the accumulation of small things, small improvements, a huh. hundred of them, that made a beneficial effect. I fear that can work in reverse. So if you have a really sophisticated adversary, those, those hundred different small things they do to really kind of mess up your logistics infrastructure uh, really might have a strongly negative effect. One more question for you. Okay. I, I think we got time for one more. We're, we're watching the clock yeah. here. Um, one more question for you. So the second problem I have with autonomous cars. Okay. Look, I, I grew up in Detroit, right? And there was nothing I wanted so much as one of these nitro-fueled you know, hot rods that are actually the opposite of safety and convenience, which seems mainly like what, uh, what you offer in autonomous cars. Or, and now, you, maybe you can ignore the adolescents in Detroit. Um, <laughs> but... Is this uh, something that Americans more generally are going to embrace? I think so, and I don't think we have to ignore the adolescents in Detroit to understand why. It's because, I, I you know, if I imagine you right as an adolescent, you're... It's what not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot like today, but more hair and darker. 
it, it's what does that the hot rod represent? It represents freedom, right? It was to get on the road, drive off into the sunset, see your friends. That notion of freedom has changed today, particularly among young people. Freedom is not sitting behind a steering wheel, stuck in traffic, not being able to go where you want. It is being online. It is actually doing something instead of, so that, that notion of what is freedom has changed. And I think autonomous vehicles are going to tap into people's desire for another different kind of freedom. And I think people, you know, if we, if safety was our primary concern, we'd buckle up more, we'd drink and drive less, right? That's not why, you know, that's not why I think we are going to want autonomous vehicles. If I'm being perfectly honest, I think it's going to tap into some fundamental American values of democracy and freedom. And that's why I think autonomous vehicles have an optimistic future. But maybe you disagree with me. So now I'm curious to know what folks out there think. Malcolm, what do you think? Autonomous vehicles, if I had a, to critique what the conversation you've just had, is that you have you understate the extent to which this is a socially disruptive yes. mm -hmm. technology. Yes. I mean, and just socially disruptive to precisely the kinds of people who today feel most socially disrupted, right? It's not the housewife in Silicon Valley taking her kids to soccer practice who is the one who's resistant to this. It's the kid in Ohio whose pickup truck is his. So that's question number one is that what would backlash look like and do we need to spend more time thinking about, I mean, everything about the technology sounds super easy and great. It's the social dimension that yeah. concerns me. How would one attach, attack the social problem? Well, so I think that, that there is a lot to offer, actually. I think autonomous vehicles have an enormous amount to offer for people who have limited mobility. And I, again, I don't just mean individuals with disabilities. I actually think that individuals who can't afford a vehicle and for whom taxis, Uber, Lyft, not only in urban areas, but in rural areas are not an option, I think this is actually going to help. But and I, th I think this is part of the problem with automation, is we don't write stories about how great it is that I could spend like $2 less on this thing that I bought. Right? That's not part of my narrative. I sort of come to accept very quickly the efficiency gains and the reduction in cost that automation provides in the goods and services that I consume. But I think the real problem is that so many Millions of Americans make their living as professional drivers. It's one of the last sources of reliable income that doesn't require a college education. And automation, it, particularly in autonomous vehicles, is going to threaten that. And anyone who says otherwise is that's wishful thinking. I'd like to answer a different question you asked. We kind of <laughs> do that a lot at RAN. What, <laughs> what I wish you would have asked was, um, so. It, the thing, the social disruption I worry more about, and I don't mean to cast a pall of gloom over this because I really am an optimist at heart, but the, the thing I worry about is um, uh, autonomous mayhem and a market for mayhem. We talked a little bit before you know, in answer to one of Nitty's questions about, all right, how might we be hacked into in a military operation? I said, okay, it's, it's all the logistic things and a million things like that. Same thing could be done in our, in our civil infrastructure. What I worry about is that either you'll have um, you know, terrorists saying, hey, look, I can have an autonomous system. ISIL's used a bomb recently. ISIL doesn't worry that much about who they hit. Mm -hmm. To some degree, uh, any destruction and deaths that they cause somehow in their contorted sense of worldview and purpose seems to help that. 
I worry about, you know, there could be more autonomous systems with a bomb, either either a truck mm -hmm. that, you know, is, is um, you know, given an address of 1776 South Main. Not that I'm worried about that right now, but it could happen. <laughs> or, you know, things show up at a house, a school, a hospital. Mm -hmm. um, and now, because it can be autonomous, the terrorist doesn't even have to put themselves at risk. There was a suicide bombing in Beirut in 1983. 240 Marines were killed. The terrorists died in the attempt. Now, you know, maybe you don't even need to be brave as well as, you know, murderous. Mm -hmm. um, but, but the other thing I worry about is there could be a market for the mayhem. Imagine that, you know, uh, different, you know, shadowy, offline, offshore, you know, groups say, hey, look, there's a variety of effects I could generate, a variety of places, you know, here's the price list. Um, and so I worry about that. Mm -hmm. um, now, one can wonder, like, why is the guy talking about this in public? It's being filmed. Well, what we find is that it's like a zero-day hack, right? Um, these are things that, that people, there's already signs that um, different groups might be thinking this way. It's very important for us to think through how it is that we detect this, how it is we protect ourselves against this, how we avoid some of those social disruptions that can be the dark side of these kinds of technologies. But how is this not, and then I'll promise the rest of you guys can ask questions. But there was We're one having point a really good conversation here. One point where you, where I, the one thing you said that I had the most difficulty was, uh -huh. with was when you said, we really have to bake in security into these systems. Sure. Following up on Tim's point. Good that was you. <laughs> uh, is that not s a spectacular case of wishful thinking? Where, where is anyone who has ever successfully baked in security into a system? The NSA, the most secure system in the right. world, has been hacked how many times in the last right. couple of years? The, there was a, I read the, the Bruce Schneier, the guy who writes about cybersecurity, had a comment recently on the Snowden case about how he felt that almost certainly Snowden had been beaten to the punch by the Russians and the Chinese. Mm -hmm. and he said, the reason is very simple. In cyber, there is no defense. There's only offense. Mm -hmm. So how do you even advance the cause of autonomous vehicles without solving the problem of security first? It's, I mean, it's a good question, and I don't have a nice pat answer for you. But what I will say is right now, our security in vehicles, there is so much room for improvement. And I think that's where I'm, what I'm advocating is mm -hmm. not that I think we will get to either hack-proof vehicles or where the things Tim is describing won't happen. It's that right now, in many ways, it can feel like the door is wide open and we don't have the means or we don't often take the actions to close those doors, the, you know, the, the vulnerabilities in our systems <coughs> where we could. So I think that's part of it. Um, but, you know, this requires a broader civil discourse about what it looks like to, you know, what incentivizes hacking, what are the ways in which it, it you know, what is the ways people can get in, what can they do, how, you know, if we talk about, for example, to, to make it really precise, you talk about the idea that people can load up a vehicle with, you know, bombs or what, and drive it somewhere. If you want to stop that, then you've got to have, potentially have a way for law enforcement to get in. That's another cybersecurity vulnerability that you've just introduced into your vehicle. So, Malcolm, I'm not trying to suggest that this is easy or that it can be entirely solved. I'm saying there are so many things that can be done that aren't being done. That's what we should yeah. demand. So if, I, if I could quickly fall, um, you know, uh, continue that thought on, uh, this is a little bit of a trivial answer, but uh, I always like the example of, hey, when you build a system, you know, say you're going to build a conveyance to take people from one floor to a higher floor, you got to think about what the failure mode is. And the nifty thing about, you know, uh, an escalator rather than an elevator, an elevator, if it fails, it's a closed booth that actually you might be shut into with the door shut. Uh, an escalator, if it fails, is a stairway. So, you know, there's a soft failure. It can still be useful. It doesn't necessarily impair the people that used it. 
Um, I think as sort of a, a top-level design principle, whatever you build, um, and maybe you could even say this about the NSA security, it's one thing to say that the secrets they had that are part of their, their trade craft have now been revealed that might hurt that. It's another thing to say that the system long, no longer functions for whatever the intended use is. So mm -hmm. however you design this, recognizing that there's going to be security breaches, recognizing there's going to be failures, either caused by people or caused because you've got these highly complex systems, make sure your failure modes are more like the escalator to a stairway than an elevator to shut doors. Yeah. It's a trite way to say this, but maybe it's useful for a longer conversation afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Will FedEx have a premium unhackable service, which is an actual human being <laughs> driving the... Anyway, questions from the audience. We have a question over here from Sarah. Will you stand up, please? Um, one of the things that you mentioned in your discussion of 10 years from now was the possibility that vehicles would be uh, run on hydrogen gas. Mm -hmm. And I've seen other projections um, taking into account that something like 50% of all carbon production comes from transportation, right. that this is truly the opportunity, or maybe the singular opportunity, to address global warming given our economy. And um, which also raises another bunch, you know, <coughs> category of losers, <coughs> i.e. our entire petroleum industry. So would you look at that, tell us what is going on right now as far as openness to autonomous vehicles across the country, um, governments, statecraft, is there any emphasis at all in on uh, trying to ensure that alternative energy sources are used for autonomous vehicles? I appreciate an answer to that. Thank you. Sure. I think that's a actually a really great question because people ask me, well, what should cities be thinking about or what should states be thinking about? It's this trifecta, actually, of sharedness, right, a shared economy that we are increasingly seeing with Lyft and Uber. It's the autonomy and it's the alternative transportation fuels that all three together have enormous, enormous benefits. There have been research that's done that shows that shared electric autonomous vehicles can be such an enormous answer at very, very low cost to our greenhouse gas emissions problem. So there's research being done that shows that these three things together ha can really transform how much, tr uh, there how the emissions from transportation. And cities in particular, and, are concerned about this because they're also facing local air pollution, congestion, a whole host of problems that these three factors together can can solve. And so it's I'm optimistic that, you know, again we talk about Silicon Valley, I'm optimistic that companies like Uber and and Lyft are looking at the way, ways to include shared sharedness, uh, sorry, include um electrification and autonomy into their systems so that we can address that problem. But again, you talk about also the people who will lose in that system. We haven't explicitly talked about it, but we've alluded to it. There are a lot of people who are Lyft drivers right now and who are Uber drivers right now who, for whom that this is going to be a problem. Uh, and I'm, I, you know, I'm not an economist, but there can be no doubt that sometimes the attitude we have is if you want to have an omelet, you got to break some eggs. And I don't know that that's a solution that we want to continue to embrace. You know, it's a really difficult problem. Um, but but I, th I think your question is a really good one, and it's being looked at. Yeah. My question follows along with that a little bit. Uh, we produce and make and sell about 16 million vehicles a year. What's the impact of automation on the number of people that we will employ? There's two ways in which that will, that at least two ways in which that can change. One is if autonomous vehicles truly are safer, then there's going to be less turnover in vehicles because you have fewer vehicles crashing, right? So you don't, you need to make, get fewer vehicles. Um, and the other way, though, is, again, building on the idea of a shared autonomous system, one of the reasons my vehicle has such a long lifespan is because I hardly put any miles on it. 
if vehicles are constantly running around servicing and giving transportation to a lot of people, you're going to have faster turnover. That's going to be a trend that suggests faster turnover. The trend that goes back and suggests less turnover is one of the reasons people upgrade their vehicles is because they want a better vehicle. They want one that drives better. They want one that's fancier. With autonomous vehicles, particularly if they're shared, that may not be less of a, an issue, but also if you can upgrade your vehicle remotely, if the latest features are not about the, qual the leather in your seats, but about the souped-upness of its autonomy, that can be done remotely. So there's actually forces working in different directions about whether there will be greater turnover, faster turnover of the fleet, or slower turnover of the fleet. And I can't make predictions on what will happen, but I think that will change. You, you know, Nidhi, I wonder about something else, too. So one of the things that I think we, all, we often miss when we look at um, big changes are, what are the things we didn't expect that mm -hmm. actually are countervailing? For instance, when the jet um, passenger liner came out, a lot more expensive, but what one of the things that was an unexpected benefit was it shook less, and so it actually was more maintainable than a mm -hmm. Pisson aircraft. Who knew? Um, so here, one of the things I wonder about is if you have an autonomous vehicle, one of the things I hate doing is being in traffic in L.A. It's a waste of time. Mm -hmm. I'm not supposed to be talking to my cell phone. You know, there's a lot of things I can't do. But if I really could just move from sitting in my living room, you know, maybe with my my spouse, we're going to go, we're we're doing something, we're having a conversation. If that simply moved ten feet onto the street, we got a small yard, um, and <laughs> and now we're having this conversation on the way to an event, I might do a lot more events. Yeah. If it didn't, if it didn't suddenly become the thing upon which I needed to concentrate, now I got to drive, I got to get there in time, et cetera. If it became just sort of a normal, graceful change of one couch to another, we're going to continue our conversation, then we wind up somewhere, I might drive a lot more. If I drive a lot more, if everybody else does mm -hmm. that too, give a lot more use of cars. Yeah. Well, you were speaking to the question of what happens to the vehicle miles traveled in the future, because that's one of the biggest links. So between, you know, uh, between transportation and greenhouse gas emissions, how much people drive? So one is if we can decouple how much we drive with the air pollution and the carbon pollution, that may not be quite the amount so of our attention we got to spend on it. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> but the this is a you know a really interesting question of how do how do people make choices? And I'm gonna if I can get just a little wonkish for a minute, what you're referring to speaks to the need that you know we have distortions in our transportation market right now. Whether that's the fact that we subsidize unsafe driving behavior because we have reduced insurance premiums, or we subsidize the impact of congestion because we allow we don't ask people to pay for the cost of the congestion they improve. All of these distortions in the market affect our transportation system today. The, you know, to go to your question, the impact of autonomous vehicles is uncertain. But if we want to nudge it in the directions that improve our transportation system towards mobility and efficiency and cleanliness and l less congestion, we have to get rid of those market distortions. You know, we have to internal, internalize the externalities, forgive me for saying that, but <laughs> we have to reduce those market distortions in our transportation system so that we can make the most use of this technology in achieving our long-term goals. We have a question from Andrew. Will you stand up, please? Maybe you could comment a little bit now, looking ahead to the next four years, right, to regulations and implementation potential, right? Mm -hmm. So if the president-elect is talking about infrastructure changes, one has to think about the autonomous vehicle potential changes. And cities and states are generally the drivers of this. So maybe you could comment a little bit about how that may look uh, and what needs to be done and what the auto industry needs to and or others need to, to lobby, if you will, the cities and states in order to get the ex mm -hmm. acceptance. 
so I again I, I don't know how much we are gonna have to, I, I almost liken autonomous vehicles to more like iPhones than some technology that people don't want no one has to put a picture about oh, why someone should buy an iPhone everybody wants one I think it's gonna be a little more like that than not but this question of acceptance has partly to do with can we trust that, that they will be safe right and how do we demonstrate safety and you know, one of the things we recently showed is that test driving is not going to be a way to prove safety. It's infeasible to test drive autonomous vehicles in, to the point where we will know whether they're safe or not. So the question I think we need to be asking people as they design our transportation system or upgrade our transportation system is can it be designed in a way that reduces the risks that autonomous vehicles may pose so that even if we don't know precisely how safe they are, we can lower the risk that they might present. And that includes things like designing our roads for consistency and clarity so that autonomous vehicles can make better sense of the environment, designing the way our you know traffic intersections work so that they are good for people as well as for uh, as well as for autonomous systems. There's a lot of things that, I'll use the phrase again, that can be baked in, and there is a window of opportunity right now for, not only, and we talk about cities for, often because of urban transportation, but freight transportation is also an enormous part of this, and it may be even the leader in autonomous systems. And so I think there's a lot that can be done, and if we are in fact reinvesting in our infrastructure, we need to include autonomy in that, in that decision making. We have a question here to your left. Thank you. Um, I am unclear about how the, um, this industry, if it is an industry, is going to work. Um, I mean, are we going to see companies like, Sh I mean, is, is Chevy going to make these vehicles? Um, are you going to say, you, you can't ban the person who has the truck no. from driving his truck? And, uh, you know, are autonomous vehicles and truck owners going to be the next, like, gun owner is saying, you know, you're not going to take my Chevy <laughs> truck away from me. I'm not getting in one of these autonomous things. So, so if Go I could just, I'm going to venture something, you know, maybe uh, um, whimsical, and then Nitty can say something really smart. Um, the whimsical thing, as you said, who's going to build this? And what, you know, how do you deny the guy the pickup truck? You know, is, uh, you, the guy with the pickup truck is going to buy a pickup truck. But the marketing pitch now is going to be, well, would you rather be the bowling ball or the pins? You know, so so I always see the the truck will be like the bowling balls and the the uh, autonomous cars will be like the pins, you know, on the highway. So how do, how do these two things? Um, how do they how do they um, go together on the right. same road? And how do you make sure that? The people that maybe for legitimate reasons are going to drive around the farm fields and maybe there's not a good autonomous infrastructure there. Or maybe just it's a preference. How do these two things go together? Well, and let's remember that it takes about 30 years for our transportation fleet to turn over, right? The oldest cars are about 30 years. So this is going to be not something. So, you know, Malcolm, you were asking, are we going to do this too fast? We are now at the edge of this technology getting introduced. I I think it will necessarily take decades for this to be widespread. And my hope is that is long enough for people to understand and adjust in the ways that you know they, they might need to. So I think it's going to be at least a longer process than we may have seen with, you know, than compared to things like Brown versus Board of Education or transgender. I think it'll be a different kind of thing. You're asking who's going to make it. Nearly every major automaker is investing in developing these technologies. And we're seeing partnerships between Detroit and Silicon Valley because Silicon Valley knows how to write algorithms and build sensors. They don't know how to build cars. And so we have partnerships between Lyft and GM and Uber and Volvo, I believe, and Google and Ford. So these are, I think, exciting partnerships for both. And automakers know that 
I think they're, they're starting to realize that the nature of transportation may be changing from this idea of personal ownership. When I want trans transportation e equating to personal vehicle ownership, moving towards transportation as a service and even mobility as a service. And so in a way, I think a lot of the Detroit companies are going to have to rethink their role in the transportation system as being providers of cars to being providers of mobility. I think they're starting to pay real close attention to that. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.